This is BioBusters, professors hanging out talking science, episode number five, recorded on September twenty fourth, two thousand eighteen. I'm Delbert Abi Abdallah, and I'm here with Chris Fawner. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Always great hanging out with you, talking about science. <laughs> uh, only you would say that, of course. So, uh, how's your semester going? Not too bad so far. What week five and just chugging along. Is I it guess. week five already? It is. I keep a mental track countdown of the hours, days, even sometimes minutes in my <laughs> head. So you know, there's have... a, a there's a, I'm, I'm sure someone has a countdown of days left to break, days left to like Christmas or whatever. Oh, in my classes we have a calendar going on the <laughs> side blackboard. So for sure. Uh, okay. Cool. Cool. And uh, how was uh, your first exam? You you gave a couple exams last week, right? Every one of my classes has had the first exam so far. Um, not too bad. I'm pretty satisfied with most of the grades, of course. Some people can always do better, and that's what I'm pushing my students to do in the next few weeks before exam number two's roll around. There's always room for improvement, as I was told, and as you were probably told all throughout your college career. There's plenty of room for improvement. But <laughs> plenty of room for improvement. Even now, I'm always told that. So. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, you're, you gotta learn every day. So, um, anything else you want to talk about before we get into our topic today? Um, not really. Just to give a kind of spoiler for our listeners coming up in the next few weeks, we're going to be bringing some of our illustrious students oh, onto the podcast, yeah, we're right? We have uh, student guests talking about specific topics that they themselves have chosen, they have researched, and that they have some kind of passion about. So Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to bouncing off of them, you know, some of the ideas and interacting with them, see what they have in store for us. Yeah, that should be fun. Uh, so before we get into our topic today, we have a correction to make, don't we? Uh, yes, we do. Um, I foolishly, in the midst of whatever I was rambling about in the last podcast when we were discussing, what was that, the sleep paralysis, sleep paralysis correct? Yeah. And REM, I misdiagnosed or mis. Classified, yeah, yeah, misidentified yeah. as resting eye movement, and that is pretty much the opposite of what it should be. <laughs> REM is instead defined as rapid eye movement. So thanks for remembering that, and a shout out to our listener who was astute enough that they caught that minor mistake on my end, the minor mistake that ended up kind of being a big mistake in and of itself. But thank you, mystery guest. REM defined as rapid eye movement. Uh, I actually know who it is, but I won't say it on the air. But yeah, we'll keep it as mystery guest. Yeah, but, mystery guest. I, yeah, I got, I, I got, I got a text. Uh, I was like, uh, you know, sort of laughing about it. But you know, that's what we like. Um, not only <coughs> oh, what absolutely. we're talking about, but we like the audience input. And if there is something that's either confusing or inaccurate that we would talk about. You know, we don't make many mistakes, of course, but we do make some, and Absolutely. we always like to clarify things. Yeah, and we're only human, right? And, uh, you know, we make mistakes, we correct them. Exactly. But moving on without wasting too much time here. Uh, so today we're going to talk about vaccines. What are they? Uh, a bit on the history of vaccines. Uh, it's a topic of interest to a wide segment of the population, right? And has been somewhat misunderstood recently, right? Particularly with... Uh, people thinking that there uh, is a link with autism, which there's not. You know, we'll talk about that. But uh, it's it's a slightly controversial subject in, in our society at the very least. Right? I would say the more that we can repeat that and get that out into the general public is the idea, scientifically proven, vaccines do not, I repeat, 
hopefully I'm not stuttering or misdefining this, vaccines do not cause autism. Effectively. Yes. Indeed. So uh, what do you think? Maybe, you know, to, to fully understand, I think, uh, vaccines, vaccinology, if that's a, you know, topic, and um, immunology, there are a couple sort of, you know, terminologies that we need to go over. Right? Oh, yeah. And I think the very first one is something that our listeners should have at the forefront of their minds right now is what exactly is a vaccine, right? So a vaccine is going to be any substance that can effectively elicit a protective immune response against a biological entity or molecule that can cause a disease. So basically we're talking here about a vaccine that's going to stimulate your immune system by kind of giving it a hint or a taste of the possible dangers that are out there in terms of you know any nasty pathogens that can cause disease. Absolutely. So it's effectively giving your immune system a preview of what's out there, what's potentially to come, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, what your immune system does is develop a memory against the vaccine and will remember that in the future uh, for future infections. And then if you are to get exposed to the actual pathogen, you're much better prepared. Oh, absolutely. Your immune response knows what to do right away. Exactly. And remember, and for those of you who either know this or don't know this, the vaccine is usually composed of either weakened or dead forms of microbes or the microbes' toxins or even kind of a surface component or structure that's found on the microbe. Right. You are never actually ever infected with the actual thing with a vaccine. I think that's maybe the first misconception that we can put to rest in this podcast is the idea that you are never exposed to a live form of this particular microbe. Of the fully deadly. You can be exposed to a live weakened form, but of the fully deadly one, never exposed to the full pathogenicity of of a virus or bacteria or whatever. Usually, for the most part, it's a weakened or dead forms of a microbe. Exactly. So what is uh, vaccination then? So vaccination is basically the act or the action of receiving a a vaccine, right? Um, Coming up in the next few weeks, I imagine definitely by mid-October, end of October, they're going to be having the flu vaccines here at Teal. And if there's another piece of advice that we would want everybody to remember who's listening, yes, it is in your best interest to get a flu vaccine vaccine for this year. And uh, I usually make uh, that announcement in class. And uh, what I also do is because uh, class time sometimes coincides with when the clinic is open to administer those vaccines. I'll let kids out early. Uh Uh-oh, I'm smelling a hint of a class cancellation coming up. No, 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 no. We're on the record here. No, no, we are are not canceling class. Can't wait till students are knocking on the door saying, Dr. A, you said class was canceled. You get 10 minutes to rush out there and get in line to get a vaccine. You are not dismissed from class. 10 minutes early is 10 (laughs) minutes early. I'm sure they'll take it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure, for sure. So, and uh, what is immunity? Immunization then? So immunization is the process of getting a vaccine or becoming more immune or protected against whatever substance, virus, microbe that you are being immunized against, correct? And for the most part, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say you usually get a vaccine before you're exposed to the disease-causing organism for which you are receiving that vaccine. Absolutely, absolutely. And then uh, you develop what's called immune memory, right? Yes. And that's a process by which the immune response effectively develops antibodies 
or cells that can then recognize infections in the future. Exactly. And when we talk about immune memory, again, this is really getting into the specifics of immunology, some specifics, but the specific type of immunity that we're talking about here in terms of memory cells, we're talking about the long-term or adaptive immune component yeah. of yeah. the immune system. Absolutely. And, you know, we're not going to get into it, but these are, you know, B cells, T cells, things like that, but we're not, that's not this podcast, right? Exactly. But effectively, it is the arm of the immune system response that vaccines activate, they want to activate a good vaccine, will activate a memory immune response, right? So in terms of vaccination, are certain vaccines completely effective on their own whenever you receive them or that you're injected with them, or no. can they sometimes receive a little bit of help? They can receive a little bit of help, and vaccine formulations are actually designed in such a way to allow for that to happen, right? And so what's added, and that's part of the controversy over vaccines that we'll get into, right? What's added to vaccines are two things. Other, well, I, I suppose three things. Mm-hmm. The first thing is what you're being immunized against. Yes. Then you can have preservatives in a vaccine to effectively prevent contamination by bacteria or fungi, right? Which is very important, right? right. Whatever you're receiving, you want to make sure it's necessarily kind of pure or clean. If right. there's any well, it's also part of regulation. Like exactly. The FDA, the CDC, whatever, whoever regulates these things, FDA, yes. will not allow you to put a vaccine out there without it you know, being absolutely pure, right? A vaccine should not cause disease. Well, I think that right. would defeat the purpose, exactly. right? Right. And the other thing that's added to a vaccine is something called an adjuvant. And an adjuvant is simply an agent or a molecule added to a vaccine to boost immunity because the vaccines on their own are not that effective. They need a bit of help. And uh, that's where these adjuvants come in. Okay. Uh, The other two uh, things that sort of immunologists talk about in terms of uh, vaccines are the terms uh, antigen and antibody. So I think from teaching, I would imagine, in immunology, sometimes maybe students get those terms confused more often than not, right? They do. And in fact, they have a pretty kind of simple distinction between them. An antigen is going to be basically any substance that's able to elicit or cause an immune response from your body. Correct? In the simplest definitions, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. And we could talk, I'm sure you could talk for an entire semester about... Well, I don't you know, know about antigen. an entire semester. <laughs> Maybe a few weeks. Maybe a few few hours, sure. But basically an antigen, any substance, for example, any outside pathogen that once it gets inside of your body is able to elicit or produce an immune response so that right. your immunity is mobilized internally. So then what is an antibody? It's what your body makes effectively against that antigen. In, again, simplest definitions, simplest terms. It's, yes. a, it's an anti against a foreign body. It's a molecule that is a protein that is secreted by your body to protect against infection. And a lot of people, even those that, you know, don't go to study biology, know what an antibody is, right? It's, I feel like it's one of those terms that's frequently used in the general population. Right? No, I think so too. Again, yeah. maybe sometimes used inaccurately, I found, but for the most part, everybody has a general idea of what an antibody is. Absolutely. So any other terms you think that we should discuss before we get into uh, vaccines, their history? I don't think so. Just as of right now, I think the few key terms to keep in mind, of course, what a vaccine is, correct? And then finally, those preservatives and those adjuvants that we're going to be mentioning and bringing up throughout the next few minutes, because this is where some of the controversy is going to be originating from, especially with some of these preservatives that are added in. Some preservatives are still present. Some preservatives have been taken out. This is where we're going to get into the real meat of the controversy. Cool.
So uh, move on to vaccines and vaccine history. I think before we talk about the controversy, as with anything, we need to be fully aware of what the general history is. Sure. All right. So the uh, father of modern day vaccination is considered to be Dr. Edward Jenner. And, uh, you know, he used to be uh, an English uh, doctor who sort of, quote, you know, we'll put that in quotation, invented the first vaccine, right? And uh, uh, before vaccination, however, and, you know, this was for smallpox, right? Before vaccination, uh, the common practice to sort of uh, maybe vaccinate people against smallpox used to be a process called variolation. Mm -hmm. And uh, what that is, is effectively the deliberate infection or inoculation of a person with effectively a smallpox uh, blister or scab, right? So the Chinese sort of perfected the process hundreds of years ago, right? Earliest documentations go back maybe to the 15th century or something like that, right? So it's been around this kind of general idea the earliest form of what will eventually become vaccination has been around for a very long time. Absolutely. In I its mean, simplest form, yeah, of course. in its simplest form. And, you know, you know, humans obviously would, over periods of time, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of years, well, we have, we've been around for 100,000 years, right, as far as we know, but uh, have realized or, you know, paid attention to the fact that if you get certain diseases when you're a child, you are not going to get them when you're an adult, things like that. So exactly. we had an idea of like, oh, this is a one-time thing, right? But we didn't really know what was going on. Yeah. We didn't really know what we're being infected with. But um, they effectively, uh, the Chinese figured out that if you were to take the scab or uh, sort of the pus from someone who has an active smallpox infection. And smallpox is a viral disease that gives you blisters all over your body, right? Mm -hmm. Or in certain areas of your body. Uh, where if you were to take that, you know, they used to take these scabs, dry them into a powder, and then uh, sort of... Uh, kind of rub them Rub into them into an open wound or sometimes a mucosal surface, right? Yes. Like, say, into the nose. like the, Something to, where you're going to get absorption. Right. Yes. They used to blow powder into people's nose. They had this little, like, you know, device, I guess, that, like, blows powder into people's nose. Like a little spritzer or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there was also routine use of this in the Middle East as well, right? I, for one, am kind of glad that now they just prefer the injection method because I'd hate to go into the back room and have a doctor come out with a few different vials and say, so which scab do you want? Do you want one from Delbert? Do you want one from, let's say, Dr. Pete Rydberg? Shout out there. Or uh, Mystery Guest C, which scab would you prefer to be rubbed into an open wound? Um, but uh, but anyway, so that's, that's sort of what they used to do, right? And that process was called variolation. And that's in effectively infecting someone with a live virus, right? There was a risk of actually getting the infection. The practice soon spread to England. It was brought back to England uh, uh, by, uh, you know, observers that saw it in, you know, in modern-day Turkey, right? Mm -hmm. And eventually spread to North America as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a story about... Uh, a uh, North African slave who lived in Boston and, 
you know, uh, there was an outbreak in, in, in Boston and uh, he and his family were protected because he had received this sort of variolation when he was back in North Africa, yeah. right? And uh, his, owners, break. Yeah, yeah. his owner, well, I mean, he was a slave, not um, much of a lucky break there, right? But uh, his owners at the time realized that, oh, yeah, what's going on here? And then he told his owner what, what's happening. And then his owner effectively took the practice and, uh, you know, started advocating for it in Boston. And uh, at some point, it became common practice in North America to sort of variolate, infect with live smallpox virus, right? Mm -hmm. uh, even George Washington ordered his army variolated. It's a very strategic move, very smart. Well, he did it after he uh, lost a battle, right? He yeah. was trying to take Quebec in Canada and, you know, failed miserably yeah. uh, because his uh, army came down with uh, smallpox infections, right? And uh, But anyway, so variolation sort of was the practice. You run the risk of actually con contracting disease. It's not... It's not a great thing to do. There was a death rate that sort of was involved with that. It was a low death rate, 2 to 3%, but about 10 times lower than if you had actually gotten the infection, right? So that's the key difference there. Even way back when, yes, the death rate, I would argue, was still a little bit high at 2 to 3%. But compared to those who contracted the virus naturally, the death rate of those who were inoculated was 10% lower or 10 times lower, right? Well, there was a mild form of, of smallpox, right? And uh, it, if you were smart about variolation, you actually variolated with uh, the less less deadly one. Okay. Right? And that was, that was a trick there, that variolation was done with the less deadly one, mm -hmm. right? But, uh, and you know, but you still, there was a chance of dying, right? So then... That old school kind of old-fashioned technique, if you want to call it that, from, you know, hundreds, potentially thousands of years ago, right? How did we eventually transition from that technique of rubbing the scabs, putting it into a powder, blowing it in somebody's face? How did we eventually transition from that more, I don't want to say medieval, but that more well, antiquated I mean, it, it technique? Is, it is medieval. It is a little bit medieval. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that more antiquated technique to what we do today with injections. So... Let's go back to Edward Jenner, right? So Edward Jenner, he was an English doctor. He lived in England, traveled extensively around the countryside. And uh, one thing he noticed is that milkmaids, and, you know, these are women that milk cows effectively, right, uh, were spared the ugly infections uh, that would come with smallpox mm -hmm. if they had been previously exposed to cowpox. So cows have a similar virus that causes cowpox instead of smallpox, does cause extreme mild disease in people, right? And if you're sort of infected with uh, cowpox, uh, it turns out you are protected from infection with smallpox. And one of the things that Jenner wondered, well, what is it about cowpox that offers some protection against smallpox? And if I were to take somebody who's infected with cowpox and then try to infect them with smallpox, do they get infection? Or if I were to take cowpox from someone who has it, let's say a milkmaid or a cow, mm -hmm. and then give it to someone who doesn't have it, and then come back a month later and give them smallpox, do they get smallpox? And mm -hmm. it turns out they don't. Yeah. And that's how sort of the vaccine was born. And the idea is that you sort of introduce into someone's body, to the immune system, something that is related, yes. similar, looks like it, right, mm -hmm. uh, is weakened or mm -hmm. could be dead, right? 
that is related to the actual infection, you develop some sort of immune response against that. So when you do get infect, infected with the actual thing, uh, you don't get disease. Exactly. You're somewhat like you're training, priming the yeah, immune system in order for a future encounter. Yeah. So, uh, and, you know, so he, he tried it actually on uh, this little eight-year-old kid who was his uh, gardener's son. Ah. Yeah. And, you know, we'll assume that he gave informed consent, but most Let's likely hope. not. <laughs> most likely. Why could you be informed consent if you don't know anything about vaccines at the time? There's no, in, right? There's no informed, really, if you think about it. I would say we could argue about the nature of informed consent from the medical even standpoint. Today, even, even today. Even today, we could right? argue about that. Absolutely. We can make it an episode. Yeah. But well, maybe we should. I, did, you know, I think informed consent is... I think unless, it's a gray area, a gray oh, unless, guideline, you're, unless you're a medical doctor or someone who really understands exactly uh, medicine or science. Informed consent is a myth. Oh, I think so. I agree. Well, hey, um, well, here's your episode, folks. We don't need one. <laughs> episode six or seven. Yeah, we'll just start talking about informed consent now. So, but anyway, so he took this child, uh, gave the child uh, effectively cowpox, transferred it to the child, and about six weeks later, came back, infected the child through variolation, effectively, with smallpox, and uh, he did not develop an infection. Which was a pretty uh, significant finding and I'm success sure to everyone's in this delight. Yeah, field. Yeah, yes. yeah. And then he tried it a few times and the uh, vaccine was born. And uh, eventually it took off in England uh, in, in such a way that eventually variolation was banned. In, in about the 1840s or so. Mm -hmm. So Jenner, uh, think about 1700s, uh, mid-1700s perhaps. But variolation was eventually banned uh, in, in England because uh, vaccination with cowpox was uh, pretty... The better method. More, more successful. Yeah. Well, more well, more successful in terms that there are less deaths. Exactly. Yeah. So what's the difference between uh, variolation and vaccination then? And the main difference is that uh, one can give you disease and the other cannot, right? Exactly. So variolation is the actual infection with the organism. Yeah. And uh, vaccination is not. Weakened or Absolutely. dead form. Yeah. yeah. And uh, eventually, so vaccines took off, right? Uh, but they were not called vaccines at the time. It, it, it took uh, Louis Pasteur in the 1800s to actually call them vaccines. Mm -hmm. Uh, in honor, uh, in a veiled reference to uh, Edward Jenner, right? Mm -hmm. So the word vaca is cow in Latin, and vaccinus is uh, of or relating to cows. So in in sort of a reference to the origins of vaccines in cows, uh, the root word vaca or vaccinus was used to uh, create vaccines. I would hazard to say that's probably one fun fact that a lot of our listeners maybe didn't know. Yeah, you know, I talk about that in my immunology course, and every single time, most um, most students uh, just don't know that. And I, I think it's cool. Yeah, their eyes light up. Yeah. And uh, most vaccines used today were developed somewhere in the 1900s, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they have vaccines, uh, single-handedly, I would say, have been credited with saving more lives than any other medical intervention. And then add to that hygiene. Mm-hmm. Right, Washing, increased hygiene increased standards. Hygiene, yes, uh, it, probably indoor plumbing and bathrooms, things like that. Just overall kind of uh, refinement, maybe you want to call it, or an advancement of kind of society. Yeah, and aseptic technique. Yes, of course, that's a big one. And 
probably uh, the reason uh, we all survive, or most of us, not all, obviously there are still a lot of, to, to be done, uh, most of us survive past the age of 10. Well, what we're going to see in the next few minutes is a report and a reporting of various statistics and some pretty alarming outbreaks, right? So whenever it comes down to this vaccination and anti-vaccination purported movement, there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of rumors spread, right? A lot of it, in fact, 99 to 100% of it is scientifically inaccurate. And what it leads to, unfortunately, are deaths. Right. Right. And it may uh, not uh, be vaccine preventable diseases. Exactly. Which and here sad. we're talking about vaccine preventable diseases. And this is not me judging necessarily from a judgmental standpoint. Anybody who supports anti-vaccination. Instead, what I'm doing here is just critiquing, right? I think we both are. From a scientific standpoint, anti-vaccination is unhealthy and deadly. Yeah. It can yeah. be deadly. Yes. Well, I mean, yeah, you're critiquing and not judging. I, I may be critiquing and judging. I think uh, I think it's uh, unless you have a medical reason for not vaccinating a child. Which is possible. Which, which, is, is, which possible. is possible. Yeah, we're not denying that. Unless you have a medical reason for not vaccinating a child, uh, you are putting that child's life uh, in danger by not vaccinating. And that's negligent. Yes. And uh, in my opinion, uh, should be uh, should be punishable in some way. It is. I mean, you we, said I mean, we, neglect we, and, and yeah, child endangerment yeah, in and, and of we, itself. We take a child away from a, this society takes a child away from its parents in cases of uh, you know neglect and uh, what, however we define that neglect, right? And um, I think uh, refusing to vaccinate for anything other than a medical reason, possibly a religious exception, right? We still we still have a constitution that sure. protects that. Possibly yeah. a religious exception, right? Uh, anything other than that, I think, is uh, is is a shame. No, I think so too. And as we're going to see, a lot of these different outbreaks, and yes, what eventually led to deaths, were simply very easily could have been prevented. Oh, absolutely. If a vaccine was administered yeah. at the appropriate time. And in a lot of cases, it's uh, people that don't have the appropriate information or have a lot of wrong information. Yes, I yeah. agree. So let's so, talk so about... Talk about uh, some stats in the U.S., the importance of vaccines. What well, you know, did, uh, can we pick, uh, I don't know, measles maybe? So I think the most kind of common and most conspicuous example would be something like measles. So everybody has heard of measles. It's a fairly common, well, it used to be common, childhood infection that's caused by virus. And I, used, I said that very strategically in my head. It was once quite common, but now... It's very easily preventable if one actually gets a vaccine and chooses to have their children get vaccinated as well. The thing is, it can be prevented, but it's very, very highly contagious. It if is. it is not prevented, it can be spread very easily through the air whenever somebody's infected and is coughing and sneezing. It can eventually lead to fever, runny nose, and a pretty nasty rash that spreads all over the body. Now, a few kind of dates here. So 1963, I think you had said that most of the vaccines in the 1900s had started to have been developed. 1963, measles-containing vaccines were first licensed in the United States. By the time we get to 1988, 
following the introduction of vaccines that contained measles and through two measles elimination efforts, the measles incidence fell to about 1.3 cases per million population. So a pretty low incidence that we're seeing here, right? By the time we get to 89 to 1992, though, we see a little bit of a resurgence in multiple countries, including the United States, which was likely simply due to less than optimal vaccine coverage in especially preschool-aged and that kind of childhood-aged um, uh, subset of children. And we're, we're talking about measles cases in the United States. Exactly. Okay. So in order to combat that, there was an introduction of a routine second dose of measles-containing vaccines for preschool-aged children, and this is the, what started the third elimination effort. This was successful, so I want to make that clear again to proponents of anti-vaccination science, if you want to call it that. By 2000, measles was officially declared eliminated from the United States. So by the time 2000 ends, you think, okay, it's the end of the story, right? We got rid of it. It's not ever coming back, unfortunately. Which, which is fantastic, right, and speaks to the power of vaccination. Exactly. That you can eliminate a disease from existence. And a highly contagious disease right. in and of itself. Yeah. Exactly. So then, 2000, we eventually get... And this has occurred. One big notable case that we'll talk about is in 2014. But between 2000 and 2014 and 15, numerous outbreaks were reported in the United States. And what we'll eventually talk about is what happened and what caused this resurgence of this previously thought eliminated measles virus. What eventually caused this resurgence was a fake study published in the UK in the late 90s. In 1998. 1998, yeah. yes. Which we'll talk about uh, in, a, in a few minutes. So, and you know, wasn't there a, uh, what are we, September, right? So nine months into the year? Yes. And what was the uh, uh, article or the story that came out a couple weeks ago about the number of measles cases in Europe? 41,000 measles cases so far in Europe I mean, this the year alone. Yes, the incidence is in up Europe from has like increased. Yes. A few hundred or maybe a few thousand just like five, ten years ago, right? And now it's what went up by 40 times that. If that, Crazy. I mean, it, it measles, it's almost sad to say from a scientist's perspective, but measles, which was thought to be, I would even say eradicated, it was eliminated. Uh, these measles cases are sprouting up all over. You mentioned the United Kingdom. There have been nationwide outbreaks. And when we've said outbreaks, we're talking about cases that are ranging between maybe 37 cases in a year to as many as 216 cases of somebody coming down with the measles virus. When there should be zero. When there should be zero. And that's the important thing. You get vaccinated. Or when there was actually zero at the oh, end of what? 2000. 2000. Right. Measles was declared eliminated. Now we're looking back at that, and uh, that was a presumption on our end. But it, it was so just a, a little bit to sort of, you know, thinking about this sort of plain devil's advocate a bit. So how did it come back? Do, do they know? I mean, so is it is it eliminated in reportable cases, were there traveler cases or, uh, you, do you know what I mean? No, I know what you're talking about. Um, I'm not sure in terms of transmittance and kind of traveler's cases. I know that one of the biggest causes for eventually the 
the resurgence, the significant resurgence of the measles virus uh, came down to that controversy with Andrew Wakefield. Now, that's kind of the more societal cause. I think you're talking more biologically, right? Like yeah, what yeah. exactly caused that one person who contracted measles and that eventually, you know, spread to what we're looking at, you know, dozens, sometimes hundreds of people in a given year? Because, uh, I mean, measles is a human disease, right? Yes. It's not, it is not known to occur in animals. Right? No, it's so a human the, disease. So there are in animal reservoirs, right? So if... You're talking about a vector, too. Yeah, so yeah, uh, yeah. animal to human vector. Of... It's not, it's not an animal disease. Oh, well, that's what I'm saying. That's what you were trying yeah, yeah, to yeah, think yeah, of, yeah. right? That's what I'm yes. trying to think of, reservoir host, right? Yes. So, yeah, so... Um, so yeah, if it's declared eradicated, where, where where did it you know sort of come back from, right? And um, that's uh, something we could look into, but um, or something for me to look into. So, and I would imagine the most recent. But you know the uh, the other thing is that um, is the definition of eliminated sort of a certain number of cases or zero cases, right? That's a very good question. I'm not sure if it fell under a certain number, if they then declared, okay, even if there were one or two cases reported per year, you could still right, say right, right, right. that it's eliminated. Speaking from a strict definition, I would assume that eliminated meant by that year, 2000, there were no reported right, cases. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that no reported cases, there could have still been cases that went unreported. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm going to look that up while you tell us about a couple of those outbreaks. So like I said, since the year 2000 and almost every year since then, so I'm talking about 2001, uh, 2002, going into the 2008s, 2010s, almost every year there have been specific outbreaks Again, sometimes, such as a nationwide case that was reported in 2004, 37 measles cases were reported. Sometimes, like in 2006 in Missouri and California, and then in 2007 in Pennsylvania, right in our backyard, uh, there were three to seven, respectively, cases of measles reported. I would imagine the most significant one that is fresh in our audience's mind was reported back in 2014. There were 23 measles outbreaks as late as 2014, including one particularly bad measles outbreak that originated in Disneyland in Anaheim, California. And that is most likely the one that a lot of people remember because this outbreak was associated with, I believe, at the end of the day, about 111 cases. So 111 measles cases were reported as originating from Disneyland in 2014, and that accounted for two-thirds of the total measles cases that were reported by the time April 2nd, 2015 came around. And this ended up spreading, okay? So um, approximately half the cases, so half of those 111 cases, approximately half of them were among unvaccinated people. And what it simply came down to is most of these individuals were eligible from a biological standpoint. They were eligible to receive vaccinations for the measles, yet it was intentionally remained unvaccinated uh, when they were uh, children. So what this basically happened, what basically came about from this was that this was a very simple vaccine preventable disease that they found due to 
intentional decision not to have a child vaccinated, I mean, 111 cases from a tourist-heavy destination like Disneyland in Anaheim, California, you can imagine how that could have had the possibility of becoming an epidemic in the country. And thankfully, what, I think it remained at approximately 111 cases, but that could have ballooned exponentially over the next few months and could have went nationwide. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, again, underscoring the importance of vaccination, right? Uh, So I found some data on uh, just slightly after 2000, right? So uh, really low cases, not completely zero cases, right? So uh, sort of declared eliminated perhaps is not a full measure of zero cases, right? Uh, So uh, looking at maybe... Uh, all over the United States, you know, we're looking at hundreds of million people, right? Yes. You're looking at maybe like 40 cases, 50 cases in 2002, 2003. Yep. So really low numbers, right? Low, low pockets. Of, uh, oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. So generally when we see these large outbreaks that have been reported, again, almost every year since 2000, a large number of these, almost all of them are attributed to the fact that we have unvaccinated individuals who contract, and then it spreads like wildfire. Yeah. So uh, in in relation to sort of eradication or trying to control diseases or eradication of diseases, and I think we may have talked about this in a previous episode, but uh, we have been successful at eradicating diseases through the use of vaccination, right? Yes. I would say one particularly famous disease that is now eradicated and eliminated globally is smallpox. Yeah. And uh, we we pretty much got rid of that uh, 70s, 80s, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, most of us, I certainly am not, most of us are not vaccinated against uh, smallpox anymore. I'm not. Yeah, because uh, we got rid of it. Yeah. And there's no need for that vaccine, right? So um, although, you know, it it is recommended for certain people that work with the virus, right? Of course. But, you know, that's a a different story. But... um, Probably, I would say, uh, the global polio effort, you know, there's there's a good chance that we may eradicate that in our lifetime. I would hope so. Yeah. And uh, another disease, but not through vaccination, actually, that uh, I would say is probably going to get eliminated within the next couple of years is the guinea worm. Yeah. And that's largely due to work done, great work done by the uh, Carter uh, Foundation, Jimmy Carter our ex-president, yeah. um, they have this effort to eradicate the presence of this uh, worm uh, called the fiery serpent worm, right? Uh, I like that. That's, uh, I like that name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's actually an interesting uh, life cycle. Well, we'll talk about it in parasitology within over the next, uh, I don't know, we start worms next week in parasitology, so we'll get to it. It's one of the last worms we talk about, so we'll get to it probably in about... Uh, three to four weeks if you want to sit, sit in on that. Yeah, yeah I'll just cancel a class and come in and sit in for an hour. Or bring your class over. It's not canceled. It's a field trip down the hall to Dr. A's parasitology course. I like how you spin that. Very there you, we're not canceling class, buddy. It's a field trip. We never <laughs> down, cancel. Down the hall. I never. I certainly never cancel class. But... Um, 
Okay. Anything uh, you want to talk about in terms of vaccines, vaccine history, and stats before we take a quick uh, break here for the radio section? I think we covered the history and the terminology and basically the epidemiology of vaccines. Okay. After the break, we can start talking about how exactly we got here. We've been hinting at it, the main kind of crux of our discussion for today. What exactly led to certain individuals intentionally deciding my child will not be vaccinated and then what could eventually lead to these outbreaks. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we normally try to keep uh, these sections at 20 minutes each uh, with a total episode of under an hour. But uh, this this topic is so important that uh, we, we felt the urge and the need uh, to spend a little bit more time on it. So we may have uh, you know, our first section here is looking like closer to uh, 40 minutes or so. So we may have a little bit longer of an episode today, but it's well worth your time. I think so. All right. Let's take a quick break. Those of you listening on the radio will be back after a music interlude. And uh, those of you listening on the podcast, we will uh, simply just uh, power through. All right. Welcome back to BioBusters, professors hanging out, talking science. And I'm here with Dr. Fawner, and we're talking about vaccines. Yes, sir. Hopefully the uh, first segment, uh, you found it to be useful. Uh, In the second segment, we're going to talk about uh, vaccine safety, quickly how vaccines are developed, the Wakefield controversy uh, with autism, and uh, a couple uh, papers that, you know, prove otherwise effectively, right? Yes. So uh, vaccine safety, are they safe? Uh, My answer would be yes. Well, that's good, because that would be my answer as well, right? Now, that is not to say, and we do not want to give any misinformation, right? That is not to say that there aren't some side effects with some vaccines. There are always exceptions. Absolutely. Yes. But the uh, benefits of vaccination far outweigh whatever minimal risk that comes with getting a vaccine. So the recommendation is, yes, vaccines are safe. Well, and the other thing is, these different vaccines, when they are being tested, developed, and approved, they go through many different checkpoints, right? Many different kind of hurdles before they can actually be declared safe for the the general public. Yeah, the the, uh, uh, for clinical trials, the FDA has a uh, effectively a three-phase process to uh, uh, go through to effectively put a vaccine on the market, yes. right? Phase two is a small, well, first you have to develop vaccine in a lab, right? Test it on, on animals. And we can talk about animal testing if people would like to, you know, but whatever, that's a different episode. Of course. And uh, which we already know my opinion on that one based on my tone. Yeah, it but. sounds like we're going to, that'll either be a very short future podcast or a very long with a lot of arguments between me and you. <laughs> and uh, and so, so the first phase is a small group. Uh, or cohort of healthy volunteers, right, 20 to 100. Uh, Is the vaccine safe? Does it seem to work? Are there any serious side effects, et cetera, so on and so forth? Phase two, you're looking at several hundred volunteers. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most common short-term side effects? How are the immune responses of the volunteers responding? Then you move into phase three, and here you should picture hundreds or even thousands of volunteers and you're looking at uh, also most common side effects. Uh, is the vaccine safe? Again, is it effective? 
Uh, how does it compare to those who get the vaccine versus those who do not? And the FDA will only license a vaccine if it is safe and effective and if the benefits far outweigh the risks. Yes. Okay. And uh, effectively, uh, the other thing that happens is that there are regulatory agencies uh, that follow vaccines uh, over long periods of time. Right? Yes. And um, they're kept effectively uh, safe uh, as, 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 as much as humanly as possible, right? And uh, uh, you, you, you always look at whether the benefits outweigh the risk in terms of recommendation. And of course, and that's why you have these multiple different steps and um, checkpoints that these various vaccines have to go through. It's not just that right. they're developed and they're immediately pushed out. If you remember the vaccine, um, what was it, the troubling vaccine from last year, was it, or two years ago with the flu? The fact that some vaccines that were developed and made available last year, um, some vaccines were proving to be uh, having trouble treating the different strains of the flu. That were out oh, you mean ago. that they, they were not, uh, the, the flu vaccines were not as effective? Exactly. Yeah. We talked about that in our flu episode, right, uh, mm -hmm. which was our first episode, actually. But, um, you know, with the flu, it's a unique uh, situation because the virus uh, mutates so quickly. Yes. And every year, scientists have to sort of make a guess as to, and, you know, I don't want to make it sound like, uh, make a guess maybe is a bad word to use, right? Uh, they're not sitting in a lab with a dartboard and, you know, throwing darts on uh, effectively a, a board to see which vaccine strain they're going to use, right? That's, <laughs> that's a good that, analogy. That's not that's not what they're doing, right? Yes. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's the best scientific estimation of which flu strain of the virus will be next season's flu strain, right? Exactly. And then that's how they do it, right? Which is why they're not always 100% effective. But but there's some protection usually, 50%, 60%, whatever the number is, yeah. it's better than none, right? Exactly. But so these, these different phases, they take years, years to finish, right? And that's so why it's so kind of tough and it takes... It's such a long, arduous process right. to develop these vaccines. If one vaccine's ineffective, it's not like a scientist can go throw on the lab coat and within a week you're seeing no, vaccines yeah, yeah. available, you know, widespread throughout the country. God, these things take nice time. Well, that'd be great. Yeah, right. Maybe within our lifetime, but probably not. Sure. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, even even after a vaccine is recommended for public use, uh, there's uh, advisory groups or uh, there's uh, safety groups that monitor vaccine safety over time, right? Yes, we won't we won't talk about uh, those in specific, but the FDA, uh, Food and Drug Administration, and the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, closely monitor vaccine safety after uh, the public begins to use them, and if effectively, it's to watch for possible side effects, right? And they're always monitoring, right? Oh, of they're always yeah, collecting yeah. data, yeah. and they are always monitoring. You know, the use of the vaccines, any reported possible side effects. Again, it's not like they're just letting something loose, you know, in lack of a better phrase for it, and then saying, okay, well, it's going to work. I mean, 
the scientific way is, you know, double checking, triple checking yourself, and then yeah. monitoring how Absolutely. it's actually going to be effective. And uh, peer review and checking by other people, right? Of course. But uh, we won't get into the different regulatory agencies that, uh, you know, keep watch uh, on vaccines. But uh, I think what our audience needs to know is that the United States currently has the safest vaccine supply in its history. And that's great. That's, I mean, that's one thing that uh, I'm sure we as citizens of this country can take a lot of pride in, right? Absolutely. I think I think we can. Yeah, absolutely. So switching gears real quickly here, uh, do vaccines cause autism? The very blunt, short answer is no. And here's basically why and why that kind of alternative theory of the link between autism and vaccines. So, yeah, why do we think that it, well, we don't, but why is a portion of our population and population worldwide under the impression that vaccines cause autism, more specifically the MMR vaccine, but vaccines in general? Mass hysteria is what, <laughs> I'm, I mean, I think that that's the best phrase and best term to use for this, right? Um, it came about because of mass hysteria that, unfortunately, in this day and age, mass hysteria doesn't really seem to go away. It will instead be amplified by some pretty vocal proponents, in this case, of the anti-vaccination movement. This particular social media, television, you know, are, are it's we, only gotten worse in the past few decades. Right. So, I mean, are we victims of our own? Are we victims of our own advancement in, you know, technology? Right. Is is on one hand uh, our creation of these uh, easily accessible uh, Internet uh, wacky websites that, you know, anybody can sort of start a website that says anything. Blogs. I mean, right. blog, you can podcast. Have any blog. Hey, we started this podcast. There was no regulation to get this off the ground, right? Well, the really good thing is, even if we say something inaccurate, people we are correct be ourselves. Yeah, 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 down absolutely. the door saying, "Hey, REM." But again, thank you for that. Um, it started in 1998, right? The, this former surgeon, and we'll talk about former that particular descriptor. So, Andrew a Wakefield, former surgeon and gastroenterologist by the name of Andrew Wakefield, and gastroenterologist is a doctor that does. What? Dealing with the gastrointestinal system, the workings of the stomach and intestines okay. in terms of digestion, right. right? And I believe he had previous experience with treating and researching um, irritable bowel syndrome. Okay. Sorry, I messed IBS. up there. Irritable bowel syndrome. That's better. So in about 1988, Andrew Wakefield, along with a few other colleagues, published a paper that basically, at the end of the day, used fake unethically obtained evidence to make the very speculative claim that the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, had a direct link to autism. And as soon as this paper came out, um, I am trying to think of the specific stats that were raised, but um, basically this is the cause of that drop that we talked about a little bit earlier, especially in Britain. Immunization rates after this paper was published dropped by more than 10% after Wakefield's paper was released. So this and, was published in the Lancet Journal. Yes. Which uh, is a reputable uh, journal. This is not a, a joke of a journal, right? No, this no, This is of a reputable not. journal. No. 
It was only uh, a short period of time after this paper was published in The Lancet that detractors started coming forward, basically critiquing the design of the study. Oh, yeah, scientists were up in arms right away. Oh, God. No, it was a completely, I mean, it was just, it was a mess of a paper and a mess of an experiment. One of the things that it's most often criticized for was a very, very low sample size, right? right? I believe they only investigated 12 children. And if if you were in my lab doing any experiment with an N of 12 on such a large epidemiological scale, I would also say, I, I would like, you yeah, I would like to say you'd probably politely ask them to leave, but I don't think you'd be <laughs> polite at all about it. And nor should you be. An N or a sample size of 12 individuals when talking about a link between vaccine administration an and autism development. Too, right? Exactly. We're not These, talking N of 12 of like, uh, you know, a repetitive sample on an ELISO, you know what I mean? No, these epidemiological studies, one study that came out a few years ago that tried to put like the final stamp on this to say no vaccines do not cause autism, I believe they looked at a few hundred thousand individuals for this purported link. And this paper was only looking at an annual sample size of 12 children. So what eventually came out in terms of Wakefield was that he had a financial bias when he was performing this study, which is always a no-no when it comes to scientific study, right? You want to eliminate and reduce your biases as much as possible. What actually came out was that Wakefield, Andrew Wakefield, had been funded by lawyers who had been hired by parents in lawsuits against vaccine-producing companies. So he, in fact, was aiming right at the start to prove this direct link between development of autism and vaccine administration in order, for lack of a better term, to make a quick buck. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what ended up uh, uh, happening as well is that the, the paper was retracted effectively within a week. Within a week, and I believe it was fully retracted by the year 2010. Which was already too late. Oh, it was very much way too late. By that point, I think it took approximately 14 to 15 years for the United Kingdom to actually start recovering in terms of their MMR vaccine rates. Um, By 2016, the vaccine rate was at approximately 91% for children. For MMR vaccine. For MMR vaccine, yes. And that was the highest rate that had been reported since the paper's publication. In that time frame, the rate was the lowest in 2004 at just 80%. So we're looking at a pretty significant reduction in the numbers of people who were getting their children vaccinated with MMR. And it was largely attributable to this paper. That's something we talked about with mass hysteria, right? And this advent of kind of um, social media and the fact that misinformation can spread very, very quickly now. Even as early as the early 2000s, we didn't have social media, but all it took was this press release well, and press well, MySpace, conference. MySpace, MySpace. Did they have MySpaces early? Was it, is was that? It, I, Late 90s, I, early maybe, 2000s? Maybe, I'm not sure. I'm but um, all it took was a press conference saying, yes, we've validated, confirmed this direct link. All it took was that for, what, thousands, potentially millions of people to start questioning whether vaccines were safe. So who's the one celebrity that is most often associated as being a very vocal proponent of the anti-vaccination movement? Uh, in the U.S., right? Yeah. Jenny McCarthy, right? So that's going to be Jenny McCarthy, right? I think she used to be married to Jim Carrey or whatever. I think she's a talk show host now, but she is very much. I, in I don't the think camp. she was married to Jim Jim uh, Jim Carrey. No, I don't think she was married to Jim Carrey. Oh, she wasn't. John Asher. 
Oh, maybe. Who, whoever that is, I, I've got her on, on Wikipedia, at least according to Wikipedia. Well, I need to refresh my IMDb and Wikipedia knowledge. But anyway, I don't well, know. There, there's a picture of her with Jim Carrey on here. Maybe they, like, uh, dated or something. Well, I still think I'm right, but we'll investigate that a little bit later. <laughs> um, so I don't know about you, but whenever I think about where I should go in terms of, you know, medical knowledge, medical advice, and scientific fact, one of the top five names that pops into my head is going to be Jenny McCarthy. I mean, she has a pretty widespread knowledge. In oh, these. of course she does. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. course she does. Well, who, who's the other four? Uh, if she's the one of top five, you said, right? Well, there's Howard Stern. There's uh, – no, I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> but That was a joke, people, right? So That was so, yeah. a really bad, misguided, sarcastic, facetious joke. No, no, it was funny. I like it. I like oh, it. thank you. Yeah, yeah. I but, I mean, you should, you should definitely get your advice from uh, medical scientists. Yeah. Somebody who, you know, attends a medical school, a certified medical school, and actually seeks, uh, you know, knowledge and has been trained in these ideas rather than a talk show host who has a social platform to spread misinformation and misguided ideas. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, between the Wakefield and the Jenny McCarthy effect, there's been a massive reduction in the amount of vaccination, right? Exactly. And the giant sort of uh, uh, concern here is that they cause autism, right? Yes. Which they don't. And, and the culprit – go ahead. I was going to say autism is not only a hard – type of disorder, um, it's a spectrum of disorders, right? Yeah. Autism yeah. spectrum disorder, um, it can be very hard to diagnose and it's hard to kind of determine where it arises from. It could be due to multiple genetic and other types of factors. Recent studies have shown that there are genes that uh, are linked with, uh, with autism. Exactly. But uh, so, so the main concern has been this a thimerosal ingredient that's found in vaccines. Yes. Or used to be found in vaccines. No no longer, actually, except in, 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 a, in a few, maybe. But for the most part, I think it has been eliminated, and it's actually a mercury-based preservative, right? We talked about it's preservatives not, And it's mercury-based, right? Yes. Yeah, and, and it is a preservative. It's, it's used in vaccines effectively to uh, uh, make them uh, uh, safer. And uh, to prevent contamination. Yes. And it has been extensively studied, not only by the CDC, but other uh, studies by doctors, researchers who have published in numerous, uh, numerous papers. Peer-reviewed journals, yeah. reputable journals. And my question to you then is, have any of these studies found a link between thimerosal-containing vaccines and development of autism? Not to my knowledge, no. No. Not to my knowledge. Most of them, if not all of them, have not been shown to have any link with autism, right? And it's important to note that between 1999 and 2001, thimerosal was removed or reduced to very negligible amounts simply as a precaution and in effect, to reduce all mercury exposure that would be possible in children. Right. It was not removed or reduced because it had any bearing on the development no. of ASD. No, no. And ASD is Autism Spectrum, Spectrum Disorder. Disorder. Yes. Okay. And we've got our acronyms correct this time. I think so. Uh, again, <laughs> we're counting on our peers, uh, peer-reviewed podcast, I guess we could call this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Case, the peer review of the podcast. I like that. Uh, in case we do mispronounce or say something erroneously, let us know. Absolutely. So uh, we want to talk to you about uh, two papers that we found that effectively mimic 
uh, children vaccine schedules in rhesus macaques. Uh, this is a type of uh, non-human primate. It's a, it's a monkey, effectively, mm-hmm. right? And uh, uh, the reason I like those papers is that they mimic the children's schedule, right? They follow the same. One of the one one arguments that people throw out there is that the schedule is too packed, or there's just way too many vaccines as kids and things like They're that. They're worried right? about immune overload. Right? Immune, yeah, yeah. Which well, you know, we we can have another episode on that. Yes. But, uh, uh, so they they mimic and follow these exact uh, you know schedules and uh, of thimerosal containing vaccines. Yes. And look for autism-like behavior or neuropathology, neurodevelopment, learning and social behavior, etc. Yes. And uh, just sort of a quick uh, uh, caveat to you here. Uh, I've got a class in half an hour, so we got to... Uh, wrap, oh, of course. Uh, wrap this up in the next uh, 15 minutes or so if possible. Oh, I thought we were going into midnight. Yeah. <laughs> and wrap our episode up. Right. So, so basically when ahead. they were investigating and looking at these different schedules, right, because they compared the vaccination schedule that was used in the 1990s, and they also looked at kind of the recently updated MMR vaccine schedule that was performed in what the year was – Mid two thousands, about two thousand eight, right. something right. like that. So and, they really and, covered their bases. And we'll put those. Uh, we'll put links to those articles in the show notes, right? Yes. But uh, uh, quickly for and I just met, dropped something, so excuse the noise. Um, We're falling apart here. We I know. Wrap up soon. <laughs> so uh, we've got uh, the paper. First one is uh, let's see, examination of the safety of pediatric vaccine schedules in a non-human primate model. Assessment of Neurodevelopment, Learning, and Social Behavior. Yes. The uh, first author is uh, Brittany Curtis, and the uh, last author on here is Laura Hewitson. Hewitson, maybe? Yes. And then Administration of Thimerosal Containing Vaccines to Infant Rhesus Macaques Does Not Result in Autism-Like Behavior or Neuropathology. The uh, first author on that is Gadad, uh, Barathi Gadad. And uh, last author is Dwight German, with a lot of authors in between, which we won't read to you. But we will put those in the show notes. Of course. um, So they took rhesus macaques. Mm -hmm. These monkeys. Right. And they uh, administered to them thimerosal-containing vaccines. Also called TCVs. Also called TCVs for short. And obviously saline placebos. For a control group, of course. Non-vaccinated control Mm -hmm. group. And... uh, they followed the vaccination schedule that's recommended for children. Yep. And then they followed these monkeys for a and, and observed them for a good period of time. I think from about, what, birth to 18 months of age. Okay. And what they were specifically looking for, or the dependent variables, if you will, so for my Bio 145 classes that are listening and my students, important to you know, differentiate between those variables. They looked at different aspects of social behavior, such as isolation behavior, um, various social behaviors, exploration, uh, withdrawal behaviors from a stimulus, so on and so forth. So they were looking for negative behaviors that are typically associated with autism spectrum disorder, correct? Okay. Also, and, the degree of play, how much they played with each other, right? Exactly. Well, that's the social behavior, right? Yeah. Uh, how much of that play they, was exhibited with one another, levels of aggression, 
discussion, how often they explored uh, their environment, exactly, so on and so forth. So, and they also, and this was the kind of key thing that I took away from this article. Social behavior is one thing, of course, right. but they also were looking at the cell size of different areas and components that were present in the brain. So, in addition to social behavior, uh, they, they looked I, physiologically. They looked, so they looked inside of the brains of, of these uh, monkeys and looked at whether there's any issues with neuropathology. Neuropathology exactly. is disease in the brain of any in the sort. nervous tissue, right. exactly. Yeah. And they were specifically looking at the cerebellum, the amygdala, and the hippocampus. These what, are areas, why are those important? So these are areas of the brain, cerebellum, that's going to be involved with largely kind of fine motor control in a relay for motor function. Okay. You have the amygdala, which is more the emotional seat okay. of the brain. And then, of course, hippocampus, which is long-term memory consolidation and spatial memory. And it's been found that all of these structures are reported as being a affected or somewhat um, changed in brain specimens of post-mortem autistic brains, so brains what, of tissues. Right. So what that means is that uh, brains of autistic uh, patients that have been dissected mm -hmm. post-mortem have been shown to have uh, changes in those areas of the brain. Exactly. So. Reductions in cell count, um, abnormal changes in pathology in those brain areas, so on and so forth. Okay. And what they found at the end of the day was that all of the statistical data, all of the interactions and links that they examined among the different groups, what they ultimately found was that there was no significant link between thimerosal-containing vaccines and the symptoms that we just described, both social and brain pathological. Those characteristics of autism, none of them had any link to um, thimerosal-containing vaccine administration. So no change in social behavior between exactly. the control group and the vaccinated group. Exactly. And, you know, of these thimerosal-containing vaccines, no change in uh, cellular density, overall number, yes. size, etc. in the brain. Yes. Okay, in those areas that are normally associated in terms of negative pathologies, right? With, with ASD. With ASD. Yes. And uh, what else? Are these pretty much the findings? Um, I mean, they really examined the behavior of the specimens, right? They really examined social behaviors, degree of play, like you said. Again, they looked at the characteristics of the brain, and the scientists reported exactly what you said. No significant findings between groups receiving vaccinations and the control group, which, of course, received no vaccinations. They looked a little bit deeper at specific neurons that were going to be located in the hippocampus and the amygdala, and these two areas are shown to have kind of reduced size and decreased numbers of neuron cells in patients with autism. And again, same story as before, scientists found no significant reduction in cell size in either area between the experimental groups, so those that received that, um, what is it, the TCV uh, administration, and the control group, which was the placebo group. Okay. And um, what about what about, uh, you know, observer bias? So in terms of 
what that by observing this and knowing going into the experiment that they wanted did, to did prove. the did the scientists know which oh they were blind they were blind they were blinded and well, not actually blind like I don't know <laughs> that would be funny though to put scientists in white coats uh, put a rag around their uh, face and yeah just have them be blind to the experiment for the whole few months no uh, blinded meaning for the specific tissues they were examining the data they were examining on social behaviors and the different monkeys they didn't know which monkeys were assigned to which group or which treatment. Right. So the, 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 the scientists doing these observations did not know whether they're looking at brain tissue from a vaccinated animal or not. Exactly. Whether that animal did get a vaccine or get a placebo, yes. right? Or uh, even also the social behavior was blinded. Exactly. Obser- observation of the social behavior was This blinded. was a very controlled lab study, which, again, is in direct contrast to what was happening with Wakefield's paper, right? I, Wakefield, I wouldn't even call that a study. That's I, mean, a, I guess I'm giving... Abomination. I guess I'm giving that too much credit. I like that. The abominable faux study, if right. you will. Yeah. But that so-called study, Andrew Wakefield, due to his financial bias, went looking a direct connection and found children who had received vaccines and who had developed autism. That is not the way you do proper science, correct? The paper that we just discussed, thank you, your agreement means everything. I would argue, (laughs) and I would argue correctly, that the proper science, proper causal relationships are performed in the laboratory and like you said, in a blind study where you're collecting data and then analyzing the effects and then you discover that lack of a link in this case. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anything else you want to tell us about those uh, particular two studies there? Uh, not to my knowledge. Again, it's just the main kind of finding that they found here uh, was that, again, whether you decide to vaccinate or not vaccinate your child, I think it's important to know that as of this time, there has been no controlled laboratory study that has confirmed a link between vaccine administration and the development of um, autism spectrum, you know, disorder. Could it be because uh, there is none? There is none. Yeah, I would say that's. <laughs> you almost tried to trick me there. Uh, I would. I would hazard a guess and to say with almost full certainty that there is no direct link. Vaccines do not cause autism. Uh, if they do in my lifetime, then I owe somebody some money. Well, you know, let's also remember that, you know, these are long-term studies. One of these studies is a five-year uh, five-year case study. Yes. Right? Of, of this uh, case control study that closely examined the effects of pediatric vaccines on primate development, early primate development. Yeah. And, you know, found no consistent evidence of neurodevelopmental deficits. And I think that's a key thing to take away from these studies. It's not like they looked at these subjects, these monkeys, for a week, a few weeks, even several months. No, yeah, these were long-term yeah, cohort-based yeah. studies that tracked multiple different treatment groups and found no significant causal relationship between administration of vaccines and the symptoms that are characteristic of ASD. Right. And, you know, uh, this study clearly shows that uh, thimerosal-containing vaccines uh, play absolutely no role in the etiology or origin of autism. Exactly. Very well put. All righty, then. Anything else you want to talk about? I think we're at about over an hour, and I've got class in 20 minutes, so... Honestly, I think we've kind of worn ourselves out here. I think that will about do it for today's episode. Okay. 
All right. Well, that's our show for today. Uh, you can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-B-I-O-B-U-S-T-E-R-S at gmail.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just look for the Biobusters. If you have the podcast app on your Apple device, you can also search for us in there as Biobusters. We'd show up or use any uh, podcast uh, catcher. You can also find us on Podbean. If you have an Android device and you have a Podbean app, you'll find us on there as well. You can listen to our episodes there, or you can go to our website, well, not our website, our hosting website, thebiobusters.podbean.com, T-H-E-B-I-O-B-U-S-T-E-R-S.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. I'm Delbert Abbey Abdallah, and you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Delbert. And you can find Christopher Fawner at Fawner916. That's it. Is that right? Yep. And thank you all for listening. And thanks to Baha Namani for the music you listen in the intro and outro. And uh, see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye.